Hi, everyone, and welcome to week three, episode three of the Oracle Sports Podcast. Thank you for listening. Hope you tuned in early and were able to reap the rewards off of a 7-1 start to our podcast picks. But if not, no worries. Just get on that bandwagon this week as they're going to keep coming. As always, I'm your Oracle, Jeff Horton. I'm joined by Jamie the Prophet Pascal for another week of our professional takes on a few college and NFL games, along with our free picks at the end of each. This week, I'll be covering the Notre Dame-North Carolina and the USC-Oregon State games, while Jamie covers the NFL with the Steelers and the Browns tonight and the Bills and the Dolphins on Sunday. Uh, We'd like to present them in chronological order, so I guess I'll throw this one over to Jamie to kick things off. All right, thank you, Sir Jeffrey. Week three of the NFL kicks off with bitter rivals renewing acquaintances once again as the new-look Pittsburgh Steelers look to bounce back from a disappointing defeat, while the Cleveland Browns hope to put last weekend's collapse behind them in this primetime battle from First Energy Stadium in Cleveland, Ohio. Despite owning a share of the division lead of the first two games of this new era of football in western Pennsylvania following the retirement of longtime quarterback Ben Roethlisberger, the Steelers appear to be very much a work in progress, particularly on the offensive side of things where they're still trying to carve out an identity post-Big Ben. Pittsburgh entered the campaign with a competition at quarterback as Mike Tomlin had no shortage of options at his disposal, though the quality of those options is certainly up for debate. Choosing between the incumbent backup Mason Rudolph, a former second overall pick Mitch Trubisky, and rookie Kenny Pickett was a decision that lingered throughout training camp with a longtime coach eventually replacing his controls of the attack in Trubisky's hands. After the Bears selected him well ahead of both Patrick Mahomes and Deshaun Watson in the 2017 NFL draft, yup, people were indeed fired for that gaffe, the young passer washed out among the tide of dysfunction in the Windy City, spending last season rehabbing his image as a backup in Buffalo, easily the most accomplished of the contestants to succeed Roethlisberger. Trubisky owned a 29-21 record as the starter in Chicago, guiding them to the playoffs on two occasions, despite being benched multiple times. Still just 28 years old, he possesses a mobility that his predecessor lacked altogether in his later years, opening possibilities from a play-calling perspective that simply weren't available, while his starting experience gives him a leg up on Pickett, whom the club drafted 20th overall last spring, at least for the time being. So how is the offense performed under Trubisky thus far, you ask? Well, if we're being kind, it is still taking shape. Through two games, the Steelers' attack has been aided greatly by the efforts of their defense, which has amassed six takeaways, including a whopping five in their 23-20 stunner over reigning AFC champion Cincinnati. Even when gifted with excellent field position, Pittsburgh hasn't done much with it, averaging just 18.5 points per game while netting a mere 4.6 yards per passing attempt and another 3.8 yards per carry. Furthermore, they've converted a middling 40% of their third downs and scored a touchdown on two of their four red zone opportunities. Think about that. They have more takeaways than red zone opportunities thus far. As for Trubisky... He's completed 59.2% of his passes for 362 yards on a mere 4.59 net yards per attempt with a pair of touchdowns and an interception. You're not going to get a rise out of Terry Bradshaw with those numbers, folks. Indeed, last weekend, 17 and last weekend's uh, 17-14 loss at home to the Patriots was an arduous affair for the quarterback who struggled to find much of a rhythm against Bill Belichick's defense. Where have we heard that before? Tomlin's troops totaled a uh, scant 243 three yards of offense on 16 first downs, 
converting 8 of 15 on third down and possessing the football for only 26 minutes and 24 seconds. Trubisky completed 21 of 23 passes, but for only 168 yards, a touchdown and a pick, while suffering three sacks for a loss of 16 yards. The defense, which will be without reigning defensive player of the year, T.J. Watt, for quite a while after he tore his pectoral muscle last weekend, relinquished 376 total yards, including 124 against the run. This is significant for a few reasons. The Steelers were uncharacteristically poor against the run last year, yielding an NFL-worst 146.1 yards per game on the ground, and it remains to be seen how playing without a borderline dominant edge rusher like Watt will affect them moving forward. This could prove to be particularly problematic as they face the Browns on a short week. Cleveland is ranked fourth and third in rushing offense over the last two seasons, though were relegated below 100 yards in each of their last two meetings with the Steelers in 2021. Under Tomlin's watch, this has been nothing short of a one-sided rivalry, with Pittsburgh owning a commanding 24-6-1 record straight up against Cleveland since the 50-year-old arrived back in 2007. However, it's been a bit of a different story against the spread, with his troops marshalling a 17-13-1 record, including a 1-2 mark both straight up and against the spread in three Thursday night encounters. With that said, on the rare occasion in which the Steelers are underdogs in this matchup, which is the case tonight, they've been near perfect in covering four out of the five contests and winning three of them outright. Meanwhile, after an ugly offseason that was dominated by the ongoing saga surrounding their new quarterback, Deshaun Watson, the Browns must be happy to simply play football again. Of course, the outcome of Watson's legal drama led to the Pro Bowler being suspended for the first 11 games of this season after he was signed to a $230 million contract upon his acquisition via trade, which also cost the franchise a hefty bounty of draft picks, including firsts in 2022, 2023, and 2024, along with the third and a force within that time frame. Additionally, the 27-year-old's contract is 100% guaranteed, drawing the ire of many teams around the league. However, it's going to be quite a while before Cleveland sees their new franchise passer on the field, though that doesn't mean that they can't win without him, at least in the short term. Head coach Kevin Stefanski and general manager Andrew Barry signed veteran journeyman Jacoby Brissett to serve as steward until Watson's return, which from the looks of things thus far appears to be a good bit of business by the Browns. Playing for his fourth different team and third in as many years, the 30-year-old does possess the requisite starting experience to keep Cleveland afloat, particularly during an opening stretch that appears to be far from arduous. 15-24 and 24 in just over six seasons with 38 touchdowns opposed to 13 interceptions and a career passer rating of 83.2, the club opted to roll with Brissett rather than make another trade for a more established option. But getting back to the schedule, the Browns open up the campaign with the Panthers, Jets, Steelers, and Falcons, with only Pittsburgh sporting a winning record from a year ago. Go. Stefanski's troops earned a karmic 26-24 victory over the Panthers two weeks ago, quieting former quarterback Baker Mayfield, who they unceremoniously jettisoned after acquiring both Watson and Brissett in the spring. Following that victory, common belief was that the Browns would carry that momentum into their home opener with an eye on starting the season 2-0 for the first time since 1993. We'll cut to the chase. They didn't do it. For the bulk of their matchup with the Jets, they didn't they did precisely that, dominating the affair for the, through the first three quarters of play. Cleveland scored touchdowns on their first two possessions, and through the two sides would trade punches throughout the second and third periods. The host raced out to what appeared to be a commanding 30-17 lead with under two minutes left in the game. 
However, the defense utterly collapsed during that window, relinquishing a 66-yard touchdown in just two plays on the ensuing drive, while New York rec recovered the onside kick, which of course led to another touchdown strike in short order. Now trailing 31-30 with only 22 seconds left in the football at their own 25-yard line, Brissett couldn't do much with it. Eventually picked off on a deep pass down uh, downfield intended for Cooper, ending the affair altogether. Indeed, there was no shortage of Brown supporters at the First Energy Stadium scratching their heads after that display. Cleveland totaled 405 yards on a whopping 29 first downs, rushing for 148 yards on 37 carries, converting 8 of 12 third downs, and possessing fo the football for 32 minutes and 14 seconds. However, the defense crumbled spectacularly when pressed late, yielding 128 of, the of 402 total yards, on New York's last two drives of the afternoon. Joe Flacco, a frequent adversary from his time in Baltimore, torched them for 307 yards and four touchdowns on 26 of 44 passing. Though it wasn't all doom and gloom for the Browns, for apart from that late interception with the deck stacked against him, Brissett played well, completing an efficient 22 of 27 passes for 229 yards and a score, while rushing for another 43 yards on six carries. Furthermore, the ground game continued to be this team's strength, with Nick Chubb totaling 87 yards and three touchdowns, and fellow tailback Kareem Hunt adding another 58 yards on 13 carries. It was also important to see Cooper, who had nine catches for 101 yards and a touchdown, develop a good rapport with his quarterback, for after a few years in which Mayfield and any of his receivers were rarely on the same page, this showing was a breath of fresh air. Looking at tonight's matchup with the Steelers, the Browns are 2-3 and three straight up and 1-4 and four against the spread since hiring Stefanski back in 2020 in these matchups. Though that lone cover was the biggest of them all as Cleveland embarrassed their hated foes in a 48-37 triumph at the venue formerly known as Heinz Field in the 2020 playoffs. With that said, this team is 0-2 in meetings in which they are favored. The Thursday nights have been kind to them recently with two victories in as many years. Looking at this matchup, I'm favoring Cleveland's ability to control the line of scrimmage with their offensive line and rushing attack, which gives them an edge over an offense that is still very much trying to figure it out. The total is low, so don't expect a lot of points from either side, but the Browns should score enough to cover the five. So I'm calling this one Browns 24, Steelers 21, and now I'll toss it back over to Jeff for Saturday's Collegiate All right, thank you, Jamie. And uh, typically over the last couple of weeks, we've started off on colleges where I've had the early game, the early kickoff at noon. Uh, today we're going to actually start with an afternoon game with the Notre Dame-North Carolina at 3.30 uh, kickoff. Let's start off with the coaches. Everybody knows I always like the coaching trees, and I like to go back and forth with them. Notre Dame's first-year head coach, Marcus Freeman. Is he already on a hot seat? That's like some kind of, you know, undertone going into this week already. Uh, it's just, you know, it's just, you know, fourth game that he's head coached. So he's got his, you know, cut his teeth as a linebacker, you know, and he's got the linebacker's background. Uh, he was one of Luke Fickle's first hires in Cincinnati in 2016. Uh, and then in 2018, you know, for Cincinnati, his defense ranked in the top 15 in all NCAA in rushing, scoring, and total D. 2020, he was a finalist for the Broyles Award. 2021, Freeman was Brian Kelly's top choice as a defensive coordinator and linebacker coach at Notre Dame. And as much as he's known for his linebacker coaching and his defensive coaching, now he's going to be better known as the first coach in Notre Dame history to start 0-3. So that's a little shot in a... Shot the arm there for everybody that's that's listening out there. So he did actually, you know, pull a win out his last game against Cal, 
we'll get to that in a little bit later. We'll go to some trends and some stats and stuff. But anyway, over to the offensive side, you got Tommy Reese. Some, sorry, funny people remember going to remember Marcus Freeman as the first Notre Dame coach to go 0-3. Well, I don't know if you all remember Tommy Reese, but he was a Notre Dame quarterback under Kelly. And he got the nickname Turnover Tommy after his stint. So uh, he actually just got promoted from quarterback coach to offensive coordinator in 2020. Still too young. Joy's still out. I, how he's going to fare out without Kelly around to kind of lean on. So we'll see if this offense does get up moving. It looks like it's kind of starting to chug along a little bit. But probably the best decision Freeman made yet is to hire the defensive side, Al Golden, the defensive coordinator. That's, uh, you know, as a head coach of Temple and Jamie's college crush team, the U, uh, he really only compiled a 59-59 record. He, he was really 500 in college as a head coach. So, however, as experience goes, he's been doing it since 93 on both sides of the ball. That includes a four-year stint with the Detroit Lions as a tight end coach and a linebacker coach. So he's been under Al Groh and Joe Paterno. He's known for his 3-4 defense. And, you know, he's most likely looking to use this opportunity as a stepping stone back into head coaching in college. So he'll probably see what he can do on a defensive side here and then catapult himself into maybe, you know, not, not quite a power five team, but, uh, you know, somewhere, somewhere, somewhere that mid-tier that needs a head coach. Uh, oddly enough, it was after Al Golden's game against Cincinnati at the U that everybody remembers the, I guess, him the best for when the fans called for his head and Florida State fans set up a GoFundMe to raise money for a Keep Al Golden banner for the U. So I don't know if you, if you all are around long enough to know that and been playing long enough to be a part of that, but... That happened. Over to North Carolina, we got head coach Matt Brown. Meanwhile, all he does is keep doing his thing. In the second stint at North Carolina, he's compiled a 93-63-1 record over 14 years and orchestrated a turnaround from a 2-20 his first two years there in 88 to 20-3 his last two years there in 97. So then he went to Texas, put together a 158-48 record, and has had only three losing seasons as a head coach, including the first two at North Carolina after he took over. So, and that's as a power five head coach. Uh, he, he did lose a little bit uh, when he first started in the coaching ranks. But as a power five coach, he's only had three losing seasons, which is amazing. So here's something that he did. He pulled a rabbit out of his hat by getting Gene Chizik to return to North Carolina after a multi-year hiatus. So Gene Chizik... People remember him leading Auburn to a 33-19 and record as a head coach from 2009 to 2012. He's going to be serving as the de facto defensive coordinator. He'll be using his scheme, even though Charlton Warren and Tommy Thigpen also have offensive coordinator titles. Uh, Tommy Thigpen, he actually played for Mac Brown at North Carolina from 89 to 92. And then he played a year for the uh, the Giants in the NFL. People don't really remember that. He didn't get much time. But he started coaching linebackers under Urban Meyer at Bowling Green. And then he coached cornerbacks and linebackers at Illinois under Ron Zook from 03 to 04. Uh, he spent three years with the linebackers at North Carolina before joining 
Gene Chizik at Auburn, but he wasn't retained by Gus Malzahn when Chizik was fired. So that's, that's one of the offensive coordinators. The other one, the co-offensive coordinator this year for Notre, uh, for North Carolina is Charlton Warren. He cut his teeth under Fisher DeBerry at Air Force uh, as a graduate assistant, then a defensive back coach, then defensive coordinator and assistant head coach. He also coached the defensive backs for North Carolina under Gene Chizik in 15 and 16. Therefore, I'm sure is why he brought him back. Uh, on the offensive side of the ball for North Carolina, you got Phil Longo. Uh, he really doesn't have a long tenure as a coach, but what you basically need to know about him is he's the air raid offensive guy that he basically really learned a lot under Mike Leach at Ole Miss, and that's about what he brings to the table from an offensive standpoint. But it is safe to say Mac Brown shored up the defensive side of the ball by bringing in Chiswick and two of his apprentices. So over to the, you know, kind of do some returning players. Uh, Notre Dame returns 15 starters, seven on offense and eight on defense. That includes four players in the top 10 by position in the country. You've got interior lineman Jared Patterson. Uh, he hasn't allowed a sack over 1,300 pass block snaps in his career. That's pretty impressive. You got tight end Michael Mayer. In 2021, Mayer was responsible for more combined first downs and touchdowns than any other pass catcher on the roster. You got safety Brandon Joseph. He actually transferred from Northwestern, and he's a former All-American. And as an edge defender, you got Isaiah Foskey. He's one of the top edge defenders in the country and also plays special teams and off-ball linebacker as well. For North Carolina... They return 13 starters, five on offense and eight on defense. That includes wide receiver Josh Downs. He's one of the nation's top receivers, but has to get hot with only nine catches for 79 yards and two touchdowns so far. He's not kind of picking up the slack where he was supposed to with some of those other wideouts leaving. And over on the defensive side of the ball, everybody kind of likes him because of his name, Storm Duck cornerback, uh, he's going to thrive in Gene Chizik's system, and he should man the outside. Uh, he already has 14 tackles and one pick for the year. And then you got linebacker Cedric Gray. He had 100 tackles, the lead tackles last year for the team, and he already has 14 this year with a pick. So those guys are still showing their top-tier tacklers, and they're going to be top-tier in this defensive system. Uh, just to go for the stats and cover some things here, North Carolina – before we give out the pick, they're sitting at 3-0 straight up. But they're 0-6 as a home favorite of less than 13 points versus sub-400 opponents. They just don't seem to rise up against the challenge for lower-tier teams. They always show up to play the top-level teams. But once they start getting those bottom feeders and losing teams, they just they take the foot off the gas. So they are 12 and 2 straight up, 7 and 7 against the spread at home over the last three years, but they're only 8 and 13 straight up, 7 and 13 against the spread as a home favorite of less than three points since '92. So, you know, there is that. Um, they're 1 and 4 straight up and 0 and 5 against the spread after a bye week. Uh, that's not suiting them in their favor. And they're only 2 and 4 straight up and 1 and 5 against the spread when playing a team with a losing record the last three years. So they just can't get up 
for bad teams. Uh, Notre Dame, it's never a good sign. They regressed on both sides of the ball last year, even though their, their record improved uh, straight up and against the spread. And that's usually a mark for a team that's going to decline the next year. That's one of the things I certainly look at when going against a, a team that's a favorite like that. Uh, they're 5-0 straight up, 4-1 against the spread versus the ACC last three years. 22-6 and 16-12 and and against the spread on all games the last three years. And 8-1 and straight up, 7-2 and against the spread on the road the last three years. 5-1 and straight up, 4-2 and against the spread versus North Carolina since 92. Linesmakers put a soft line on UNC at home as only a two-point favorite. 65% of the public is on UNC at home, but the line is inching down. All that leads to a Notre Dame outright win. Notre Dame hasn't forced a turnover in three games. Look out, North Carolina. Here they come. Notre Dame, the luck of the Irish. Here they come, 35-14 to 14 win outright in North Carolina. All right, to kick off our nightcap on Saturday, we got the USC-Oregon State game. We're going to start with USC's head coach, Lincoln Riley. Uh, as we mentioned with Phil Longo, the, the offensive coordinator for North Carolina, Riley is another air raid guy out of the Mike Leach system at Texas Tech. Uh, he left there. He went spent five years at East Carolina with Ruffin McNeil as his offensive coordinator. In 2015, Bob Stoops hired Lincoln as his offensive coordinator, and the rest is pretty much so well-known history. Uh, Riley did finish 55-10, and 10, which is the best winning percentage in OU history. And then he just went and left for USC after he was unhappy with OU's decision to break the Big 12 tradition and move to the SEC. So on offense, their offensive coordinator is Josh Henson. He's a little known name as a coach. I mean, nobody kind of really knows Josh Henson too much. Uh, he's an offensive line guy. Jimbo Fisher actually nabbed him from Oklahoma State in 2019. Uh, Riley needed somebody to kind of shore up his offensive line play for USC, but make no mistake about it. You already know who's really going to be doing the play calling and, and, and offensive work for USC. However, I will say this, Josh Henson's going to help Lincoln Riley a lot, and he's going to learn a lot from him. Over to the defensive side of the ball for USC, Everybody knows Alex Grinch. He came over to USC with Lincoln Riley. Uh, most people wonder why he's so good. Well, how about this? He's coached on the defensive side of the ball during weekly practices against Chip Kelly when they were in high school at New Hampshire, then with Mike Leach at Washington State, Urban Meyer and Ryan Day at Ohio State, and Lincoln Riley at OU. So all those guys play super, super fast. All he's done is coach defenses against super, super fast. So I dare you to try to play fast against him. Everybody already knows how good he is. So then we'll go over to Oregon State. Their head coach, Jonathan Smith. Uh, nobody really knows a lot about Jonathan Smith uh, unless you really follow him. But he's in his fifth year already at Oregon State. Uh, he kind of came in. He replaced Gary Anderson who had a 7-23 and 23, uh, overall and 3-18 and 18 record in conference for three years. So when Jonathan Smith came in, he went 2-10 and 10 overall and 1-8 and eight in the conference for his first year. 
and now he has progressed over his four years to last year going seven and six overall and five and four in the conference heading into this year which of course this year everybody knows he's off to a three and0 start that includes a 17 point win over perennial giant killer Boise State in the opener so now you get to the who's this guy and who's that guy thing. Offensive coordinator Brian Lindgren. People haven't heard of him. Another little-known wide receiver coach at Northern Arizona. He played quarterback at Idaho, so he's not really known for his big schools that he's been at. Uh, he scored his first offensive coordinator job at San Jose State in 2012 under Mike McIntyre. He followed Mike McIntyre to Colorado in 2013. And he stayed there with him until 2018. And then Smith brought him to Oregon State in 2018. Uh, his Beaver offense, though, has averaged over 400 yards per game every year, at least. And last year, averaged 6.4 yards per play. And go to the defensive side of the ball. Well, now we got Trent Bray. Yeah, who knows him? Nobody knows him either. Another little-known guy on the staff. He was the interim coach at Nebraska after Mike Riley got fired in 17. They probably should have just kept him there instead of hiring Scott Frost. Oh, how'd that turn out for him? So anyway, uh, you know, he doesn't have that much going on as a defensive coordinator. Uh, he is a linebacker coach in 18 and, you know, for Oregon State, he got promoted to defensive coordinator midway through the 2021 season. I will say this, last year he shaved seven points and 55 yards per game off the Beaver defense. So he's doing something right. Offense is doing something right. Can't knock him just because you don't know him. So over to the returning players. USC's defense only returns three starters from the 21 season. But they're three of the team's top six tacklers as well as leaders in sacks, picks, pass deflections, and forced fumbles. Oh, but let's not forget the transfer portal where Lincoln signed the number one class this year with 13 incoming transfers. That also includes superstar quarterback Caleb Williams, Oregon standout Travis Dye, and Colorado playmaker Brendan Rice. Yeah, that's Jerry Rice's kid. And lest we forget, Jordan Addison from Pitt, who was the previous Bolitnikoff winner. All right, Oregon State, on the other hand, they did have a great year in 2021 when they were ranked 7 nationally in returning production with 94% on offense and 79% on defense. Well, that produced a 7-6 season, and this year, though, they're down to just 73% and ranked 40th nationally. So, but defensively, 16 of the top 20 tacklers are back, including every defensive back of significance for that team. Uh, the offense, though, is going to take a hit. They lose their star running back, Baylor, who's in the NFL now after a 1,300-yard, 13-touchdown year. Uh, wide, wide outs, Trey Sean Harrison and T. John Lindsey are back, and they're going to have to make up for losing Trevon Bradford and also for returning quarterback Nolan. So, uh, they, you know, defensively, they look to be a little bit more intact than offensively. This week's going to be a big litmus test to see exactly where Oregon State stands in the Pac-12. 
I want to cover some stats for you real quick. USC is 7-0 with conference revenge versus an opponent off of a straight-up ATS win. So that definitely fits this bill. USC is also 4-0 straight-up and against the spread as a favorite of 3.5 to 10 points the last three years. They're also 6-0 and 5-1 against the spread as road favorites the last three years. On the flip side, Oregon State is 0-3 straight up and against the spread as a dog of 3.5 to 10 points the last three years. But they are 9-3 straight up and against the spread in home games the last three years. Um, on, a, on a negative side for them, though, they're only 4-11 straight up, 8-7 against the spread as a home dog of 3.5 to 7 points since 92. And then they're 1-6 off the back-to-back straight up and against the spread wins versus an opponent in their conference that's greater than 250. So uh, USC is 17-5 and five straight up, but 12-10 and 10 against the spread versus Oregon State since 92. However, they're only 6-4 and four straight up and 5-5 five and five against the spread at Oregon State. So revenge is going to play a big factor for a hungry USC team that wants to prove they're back as a national powerhouse. And Alex Grinch's defense forcing 10 turnovers through three games while Lincoln Riley's offense takes care of the ball and puts up a mere 50 points a game. And by the way, they haven't committed a turnover yet this year. Just a little sidebar. So uh, once again, the public likes USC, but the line is creeping toward Oregon State. Personally, I'll take the feisty home dog to force those turnovers of their own, keeping it close. USC is going to pull out a, a real close game, 35-32 to 32 at Oregon State in our nightcap on Saturday night. Now over to Jamie to finish off the NFL for us. Thank you, Jeffrey, for Saturday's coverage. Now we're going to transition to Sunday for the renewal of a classic AFC East rivalry as the surging Buffalo Bills take their act down to South Beach where they face off against the surprisingly unbeaten Miami Dolphins from Hard Rock Stadium in Miami, Florida. After entering the campaign as the betting favorite to win Super Bowl 57, the Bills have shown zero signs of being unworthy of that distinction, demolishing two of the very best teams in the NFL from a year ago in successive weeks. Though there was plenty of hype heading into the season opener in Los Angeles, their primetime showdown with the reigning Lombardi holders was very one-sided, as Buffalo ran away in the second half with a 31-10 victory. With the score tied at halftime 10-10, largely due to three turnovers from the visitors, Sean McDermott's troops dominated the final 30 minutes of action, marching downfield to score touchdowns on their first three drives post-intermission, en route to outscoring L.A. 21-0 and outgaining them 224-132 to in yardage along the way. Josh Allen had a high-flying attack that met little resistance with 413 yards of total offense and converted a franchise record 9 of 10 third downs, completing an efficient 26 of 31 passes for 297 yards, 3 touchdowns, and a pair of picks, while rushing for another 56 yards and a score on 10 carries. Yeah, he's good. He and all-pro receiver Stephon Diggs connected often for 8 receptions on 9 targets, 122 yards, and a touchdown. Yeah, he's good too. Maryland graduate, by the way. 
meanwhile, the defense, which ranked first in both points allowed and total defense a year ago, picked right up where they left off, relegating the Rams to just 243 total yards, including 52 of the rushing variety, while picking off Matthew Stafford thrice and sacking him on seven occasions. Free agent addition, Von Miller feasted on his former team, leading his new one with a pair of sacks. From one primetime affair to another, it was more of the same in their home opener last Monday night against the Titans and proceeded to blast them in a 41-7 drubbing. With the game tied at 7-7 after the first quarter, the hosts put their foot on the gas, running off 34 unanswered points to finish the game with sizable advantages in total yards, 414-187 first downs, 23-12 in passing yards, 317-123. to Allen and the offense put those turnovers behind them, completing 26 of 38 passes for 317 yards and four touchdowns, three of which went to Diggs, who also reeled in a dozen catches on 15 targets for 148 yards, with most of that those figures coming, when, coming within the first three quarters of play. As for the defense, they forced another four turnovers while limiting two-time rushing champion Derrick Henry to a scant 25 yards on 13 carries. For those of you who frequent this podcast, and why wouldn't you when you're getting free winners, you're aware of how I feel about the Bills and how they've basically set the modern blueprint on how to properly rebuild a franchise. Prior to McDermott and general manager Brandon Bean's arrival in 2017, Buffalo went 17 years without a single playoff appearance, 12 of which were losing seasons. After ending that postseason drought in their first year together, McDermott and Bean decided to take a step back, tear down the offense, and rebuild it around Allen, a small school prospect out of Wyoming, who they drafted 7th overall back in 2018. Inspired drafting coupled with patient player development is always a winning formula with the brain trust eventually hitting a home run with the acquisition of Diggs via trade, accelerating Allen's development exponentially. As a result, they've ended the Patriots' reign of terror in the AFC East, winning back-to-back division titles for the first time since the early 90s. Coming into this season, the only real concern was how the attack would transition from former offensive coordinator Brian Dayball, who is now the Giants head coach, to Ken Dorsey, who spent the last four years as Allen's quarterback coach. Well, as we covered earlier, the offense hasn't lost a step, leading the NFL through two weeks in points scored and third down percentage, while number 17 has completed 75.4% of his attempts for 614 yards and seven touchdowns, averaging an insane 8.4 net yards per attempt. Again, he's really good. Given his history against the Dolphins, I don't expect him to slow down much at all in the sweltering heat and humidity in South Beach this time of year. In eight meetings, the 26-year-old has completed 63.2% of his attempts for an average of 247.5 yards on a healthy 7.5 net yards per attempt, with 21 touchdowns opposed to just five interceptions, while rushing for another 430 yards in four scores en route to amassing a stellar 7-1 record. As a team, the Bills have won nine of their last ten games against the Dolphins straight up, including three straight trips to the Hard Rock Stadium and have covered the spread in three of the last four meetings. When they traveled to Miami last September, Buffalo left with a 35 to nothing shutout. Granted, repeating that feat could prove to be difficult this time around due to the injury situation on defense. Safeties Micah Hyde and Jordan Poyer, one of the best safety combinations in the league, were limited throughout the practice week due to various ailments, while cornerback Dane Jackson left Monday night's affair with a neck injury. With defensive tackles Jordan Phillips and Ed Oliver participating lightly throughout the week as the latter missed the win over Tennessee with a sprained ankle. Meanwhile, 
Could it be that the Dolphins have finally figured it out? I just spoke about the malaise that their bitter division rivals endured through the first 17 years of this century, but it's been a similar story in Miami. The franchise has qualified for the postseason on just two occasions since 2002 and haven't won a playoff game since 2000, with 11 losing seasons to their credit. Furthermore, they did not enjoy a smooth offseason, as their owner Stephen Ross was fined heavily by the NFL after former head coach Brian Flores went postal with accusations of tampering and tanking, which Ross allegedly incentivized back in 2019 with the hopes that the Finns would draft early enough to select a franchise quarterback that they've been searching for since, well, Dan Marino retired over two decades ago. Picking fifth overall in 2020, the organization passed on Justin Herbert, yikes, in favor of choosing Tua Tagovailoa, who struggled mightily throughout his first two seasons on South Beach, with injuries and a poor supporting cast making things rather difficult for the lefty, leading to an icy relationship with Flores, who benched him at one point last year. However, while Ross was making headlines for all the wrong reasons, general manager Chris Greer was hard at work bolstering the roster, with this past offseason looking like a transformative one. First and foremost, the Dolphins appear to have made an excellent hire in the form of new head coach Mike McDaniel, whose offensive prowess has been a hit in the early goings of the campaign. The latest graduate from the ever-growing Kyle Shanahan Sean McVay coaching tree, the 39-year-old has revolutionized a stagnant attack that has no doubt been boosted by a slew of reinforcements. Greer spent a fortune to obtain the services of Tyreek Hill, shipping picks in the first, second, and fourth rounds of last spring's NFL draft, along with a fourth and sixth next year in exchange for the league's premier vertical threat, whom they inked to a four-year, $120 million contract. Furthermore, they improved the offensive line with left tackle Teron Armstead and left guard Connor Williams to keep Tua clean, which has led to an attack that has surprised this guy, to say the least. Miami has averaged... 31 points per game on 445 total yards, thanks in large part to a league-best 369.5 yards through the air. Tagovailoa has been unrecognizable in comparison to the passer that I saw over the last two years, posting career highs in a slew of categories, including completion percentage, yards per attempt, yards per completion, passer rating, and QBR, all the while leading the league with seven touchdown passes. Of course, one huge performance has weighed heavily on that stat line thus far. But if last weekend's stunning 42-38 comeback at Baltimore was any indication, then big things could be weighing the fins. If Miami does, in fact, advance to the postseason on the left arm of their young quarterback, then it's likely that we'll look back on last Sunday's insane performance as the turning point. This was a tale of two halves, folks, as the visiting Dolphins fell behind 28-7 in the first 30 minutes, with the hosts running off 21 unanswered points in the second quarter. How everything changed, however, everything changed after intermission. My, McDaniel's troops put together a textbook opening drive consisting of 12 plays and 75 yards, chewing up over seven minutes of game time as Tagovailoa found tight end Mike Jasicki for a 14-yard score. After trading punts, Baltimore struck back with a 79-yard jaunt downfield courtesy of Lamar Jackson, only for Tua to answer back with another touchdown drive to cut the deficit to 14 points once again. And this is where things really got crazy. The Ravens were stuffed behind the line of scrimmage on 4th and 1 at their opponent's 40-yard line, with Tagovailoa finding Hill 48 yards downfield just five plays later to make it a one-possession game. Forcing the home side to punt, the young quarterback went right back to Hill, who burned an unorganized secondary for the second time of the quarter, sprinting into the end zone on a 60-yard score to tie the game to 35-35. to With time winding down, the Ravens retook the lead with a 51-yard field goal, putting the ball back into his hands for what would be the game-winning drive. 
a 24-year-old piloted the Dolphins 68 yards in six plays, hitting Jalen Waddle for the go-ahead touchdown. In the end, Miami racked up 547 total yards on 27 first downs, converting seven of 11 third downs in each of their two on fourth, possessing the football for a commanding 34 minutes and 47 seconds. Tagovailoa erupted for 469 yards and six touchdowns on 36 of 50 passing, with Hill totaling 190 yards and those two scores on 11 receptions, while Waddle added another 108 yards and a touchdown on four catches. It will be interesting to see if Tua can carry this momentum over to this showdown with Buffalo, for he has struggled mightily against them, losing all three meetings and completing just 56.5% of his attempts for an average of 193 yards with one touchdown, four picks, and five sacks. Hell, in last year's 35-0 loss at Hard Rock Stadium, he took a hit from A.J. Epinesa, and he fractured multiple ribs, and he missed the next six weeks of action. And speaking of injuries, there are plenty to talk about for Miami. Who could be without cornerback Xavier Howard, offensive tackles Austin Jackson and the aforementioned Armstead, along with defensive tackle Raekwon Davis, who were all limited throughout the week of practice with various maladies. If you've paid attention to the media, a ton of attention has in turn been paid to Miami, and justifiably so after that performance. But as we've seen over the last two weeks, Buffalo is on a mission and have a history of giving Tua all kinds of problems in the past. However, I'm of the opinion that this one will be a bit of a shootout, particularly with the injuries to the secondary of both teams. If you got these guys in your fantasy team, you're probably going to be looking forward to this weekend. But in terms of real football, I'm favoring Buffalo, who I'm projecting to win 36. That's it for our third episode, folks. And before we sign off, Jeff and I would like to thank you all for giving us your time. Don't forget to check us out on Twitter and Facebook and on the web at theoraclesports.com, where you'll find more analysis and information, along with access to all our packages designed to turn you into a weekly winner. Tune in next week for more of our coverage, and above all else, free winners. I repeat, free winners. Who doesn't want that? So, see ya, Jeffrey. See you guys. Till next week. Till next week.